First to a range of developments relating to the Ukraine war. Overnight, President, Russia's President Vladimir Putin delivered a two-hour State of the Nation address seeking to justify his invasion of Ukraine. He told his audience he was defending Russia against Western aggression. Finally, they revealed themselves. As we thought, we are defending people's lives, our native home, but the West's goal is limitless power. Meanwhile, US President Joe Biden is visiting Ukraine's neighbour Poland after a difficult week in which the Republicans blocked a bill to provide urgently needed funds to Ukraine. A clearly frustrated Biden said Putin can't be allowed to win. All this as Iran continues to supply drones to Moscow to use in Ukraine and the counteroffensive their appeal appears stalled. Vladimir Putin is also choosing to exercise his influence to visiting the UAE and Saudi Arabia this week, so vital to the future of the Gaza-Israel issue. Plus, this is intriguing. One of Ukraine's richest industrialists has launched a major new venture alongside key historians called the Ukrainian History Global Initiative. The aim is a full account of the nation's standalone history, not one linked with Russian history. Yes, history and weapons are key to determining the future of this conflict. As Mark Adeli will explain, Mark's the Hansen Professor of History at the University of Melbourne. His latest work, Russia's War Against Ukraine, the whole story has been widely praised. Welcome to the program. Good morning, Geraldine. Mark, some key points from Putin's speech. Once again, he accused the West of trying to dissolve Russian culture and values and for being responsible for the conflict. In fact, some say he's he's reduced his comments about Ukraine and he's elevated it to the broader West. And he announced as well that he would stand again as president. No sign of compromise, no sign that he's ready to let go of office. Um, does any of that particularly surprise you? No, that was, uh, I mean, the uh, blaming the West for his aggression has been a long-standing, um, a long-standing trope. It plays well to domestic audiences. It plays well to uh, international audiences, both in some sectors of uh, the left uh, in democratic countries, uh, it particularly plays well to audiences in the global south. Uh, so it's it's quite a good PR line. Um, and in terms of you know stepping down, he doesn't really have a choice at this stage. He needs to stay in office um, because uh, it would be extremely risky to go into retirement. So this is what confronts all real dictators, doesn't it? How will they stay alive if they, they've made so many, <laughs> so many enemies? Uh, can we move to the military situation? Based on your sources, do you think the war has become one of the things you most feared? A frozen war on the battlefield interrupted by intermittent fighting. I mean, is that a fair characterisation of what's unfolding? Uh, it's not yet frozen in that uh, respect. There's still significant fighting going on uh, and it's going back and forth, but it does look uh, more and more like the Western Front in World War I, um, i.e., you know, strong fortification on both sides and no ability of either side to fully break through. So, um, 
if one speaks to you know, I'm not a military man, right? Uh, but if one speaks to serious military analysts, and I've just been at a major conference in the in in Philadelphia, um, they're not particularly hopeful that this war is going to end very soon. So the the outlook, um, some of you know, Michael Kaufman, for example, who is probably the uh, the best analyst in the English-speaking world on the military situation. Um, he expects this conflict to go at least into 2025. So Goodness. with 2024 being kind of a, a, a decisive year where things might um, go either way. Um, but I think, I fear we're seeing uh, a long-term um, a long-term conflict unless the one or the other side somehow collapses. And this is with... Uh, what I read the other day, 900 Russian troops a day dying. So this is extraordinary loss rates. How does Putin manage that? How do the Russian people cope with that? Oh, the well, you know, the, the um, reserves of manpower are relatively high, although it does become uh, a problem now because uh, there's pretty much full employment and, in fact, a labor shortage. Uh, so running, and they've switched the economy very strongly onto a war footing, so it's now very strongly defense-driven, um, but they have trouble um, uh, supplying manpower for uh, both for, for industry. Uh, so, and of course, every uh, person you take out of industry, you send to the front line. And so far, Russia is quite strongly uh, devoted to the notion that only men fight. So uh, they sort of cut their potential um, numbers uh, supply supply in half, right? Um, so so they probably have quite a bit of um, attrition to go through, uh, but it will eventually become an issue. Uh, the problem, of course, is that Ukraine also has losses. They're not as big. They're much more careful um, about um, the lives of their soldiers, uh, but they also lose significant numbers, and uh, they're, of course, a much smaller nation compared to Russia. Yes, the yet so far, so, I mean, Putin's got some big decisions. Does he call for more mobilisation, which isn't, won't go down well, and seems might yet um, spur average Russians to worry a bit, although the economists' coverage of internal Russian attitudes is very interesting. It suggests that while the rich business types and bureaucrats are actually in favour of the war, um, the bulk of people just shut themselves off and try to live their usual old lives. And in fact, many of them are earning more, especially outside the major cities, than they ever have before. So that doesn't suggest there's any revolution brewing there. No, it does not look like that at all. There's, I mean, there's several things. There's A, you know, the um, employment in the military industrial complex has expanded. Um, uh, people... Mostly the army is being um, staffed with people from the poorest regions. So uh, compared to what they had before, which was mostly, you know, no work or very bad work, um, the military pay is um, relatively decent. Uh, there's privileges coming now with, um, with military service, which include, for example, preferential access 
uh, of children of soldiers to the universities. Um, so there's the war opens up possibilities for some of the uh, poorest parts of Russia. And Russia is an extremely um, socially uh, stratified and polarized society. So some of the biggest losers of the of the um, uh, post-Soviet transformation uh, now suddenly get um, opportunities they haven't had before. So mm. it's unlikely that we'll see uh people march on Moscow or something. Which takes us rather nicely to this amazing history initiative I talked about, led by people like the US historian Timothy Snyder and a range of other luminaries, backed by this metalworking magnet uh, drawing more, pouring more than $2 billion into telling Ukraine's unique history, refuting Russian distortions. Can you tell us more about this, please? Yes, I mean, it's... it's I don't think anything like that has ever happened uh, in terms of uh, funding for uh, a historical project. Funding by a private uh, person for a historical project involves something like 90 historians, um, 40 of them from Ukraine, 50 uh, from uh, outside of Ukraine, led by Timothy Snyder and uh, Serhii Plochy, so two extremely accomplished historians of Ukraine and Eastern Europe. Uh, and just as a little plug for the University of Melbourne, one of the people who is involved is Irina Skubi, uh, who we just appointed uh, as the inaugural Mikola Zero Fellow in Ukrainian Studies, and she will be arriving in, August, uh, in, in April. Uh, so we'll have, we'll be part of that um, enormous project um, at the University why of Melbourne. Is it, well. Why does it matter? Why is it necessary? Um, well, I think so. So, what has happened in Ukrainian history is that uh, for a very long time it has been told as part of uh, the history of the Russian Empire. Uh, so, that's the Russian version of Ukrainian history. There has, of course, been, you know, decades now of work against that. Um, in fact, there's a long tradition going back to the 19th and early 20th century of. Uh, Ukrainian writing of Ukrainian history uh, as a thing in itself. Um, but the dominance of, uh, of the Russo-centric uh, narrative is still very strong, uh, no longer, of course, in Ukraine, uh, but all over the world. What happened was that uh, after the revolution, a lot of um, liberal historians found themselves in exile uh, from Russia, and they were mostly Russians, uh, and they started to tell the, the history of Russia as, you know, the history mm. of the Russian Empire, um, and they started Russian history in the United States uh, and would train a whole generation of people in the United States, in the UK, in, in, in Germany, in France. Uh, so this kind of Russian liberal diaspora, who were also all imperialists, um, uh, defined in many ways the uh, the writing of Russian history outside of Russia. So we got the kind of Russian imperial history writing as it had developed um, in Russia, became the mainstream. Um, and it is only really in the last um, 20 years or so that 
my field has tried to, or some parts of my field has tried to uh, uh, liberate itself from that straitjacket of the of the kind of Russo-centric narrative of the region. How very interesting. So we better watch that. Uh, that's very much a story for the next few years, isn't it? To see whether it does shift the dial yeah. and shift the discussion. And uh, of course, and of course, the the two leaders of that project, right, um, Plochy uh, and Snyder, have themselves done quite a bit in order to, you know, move that dial. But it's different when there's ninety people moving the dial, or if there's, you know, a handful. Look, thank you very much indeed. There's there's so much happening in this space, and we feel we have rather set it aside in order to cover the Gaza Israeli issues. So I do appreciate your time, and I hope we speak again. Thank you very much. Uh, Mark Adele, E-D-E-L-E, and I do commend his book, Russia's War Against Ukraine, The Whole Story. It's very uh, very accessible. Um, you don't have to have a doctorate, in other words, in order to read it. It's a Melbourne University Press publication. And just a very quick mention tomorrow, our colleagues on Sunday Extra are going to be speaking to uh, people from the Kiev um, from the, uh, I've just actually lost my little bit here, uh, from the uh, the Kiev Independent, pardon me, uh, who have been reporting all through this and uh, don't ent- entirely have a good uh, set of um, forecasts about what is to come next. So that's tomorrow on Sunday Extra. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.